0: Section twenty-two of the Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Yearsley. A Vision of Judgment. Part one. I listened, not understanding. Good Lord, said I, still only half awake. What an infernal shindy! It's enough, said I, to wake. And stopped short. Where was I? Tara Louder and louder. It's either some new invention. Dura dura dura. Deafening. No, said I, speaking loud in order to hear myself. That's the last trump. Dura Part two. The last note jerked me out of my grave like a hooked minnow. I saw my monument, rather a mean little affair, and I wished I knew who'd done it and the old elm-tree and the sea-view vanished like a puff of steam, and then all about me a multitude no man could number—nations, tongues, kingdoms, peoples, children of all the ages, in an amphitheatral space as vast as the sky, and over against us, seated on a throne of dazzling white cloud, the Lord God and all the host of His angels. I recognized Azrael by his darkness, and Michael by his sword, and the great angel who had blown the trumpet stood with the trumpet still half raised. Part three. "'Prompt,' said the little man beside me. "'Very prompt. "'Do you see the angel with the book?' He was ducking and craning his head about, to see over and under and between the souls that crowded round us. "'Everybody's here,' he said. "'Everybody? "'And now we shall know—' "'There's Darwin,' he said, going off at a tangent. "'He'll catch it. "'And there, you see, that tall, important-looking man "'trying to catch the eye of the Lord God, that's the Duke. "'But there's a lot of people one doesn't know. "'Oh, there's Priggles, the publisher. "'I've always wondered about printers' overs. "'Priggles was a clever man. "'But we shall know now, even about him.' i shall hear all that i shall get most of the fun before my letter's s he drew the air in between his teeth his historical characters too see that's henry the eighth there'll be a good bit of evidence oh damn he's tudor he lowered his voice notice this chap just in front of us all covered with hair paleolithic you know and there again but i did not heed him because i was looking at the lord god part four is this all asked the lord god the angel at the book it was one of countless volumes like the british museum reading-room catalogue glanced at us and seemed to count us in the instant that's all he said and added it was o god a very little planet the eyes of god surveyed us let us begin said the lord god Part five. the angel opened the book and read a name it was a name full of a's and the echoes of it came back out of the uttermost parts of space i did not catch it clearly because the little man beside me said in a sharp jerk what's that it sounded like ahab to me but it could not have been the ahab of scripture instantly a small black figure was lifted up to a puffy cloud at the very feet of god it was a stiff little figure dressed in rich outlandish robes and crowned and it folded its arms and scowled well said god looking down at him we were privileged to hear the reply and indeed the acoustic properties of the place were marvellous i plead guilty said the little figure tell them what you have done said the lord god i was a king said the little figure a great king and i was lustful and proud and cruel i made wars i devastated countries i built palaces and the mortar was the blood of men hear o god the witnesses against me calling to you for vengeance hundreds and thousands of witnesses he waved his hands towards us and worse i took a prophet one of your prophets one of my prophets said the lord god and because he would not bow to me i tortured him for four days and nights and in the end he died I did more, O God. I blasphemed. I robbed you of your honours. Robbed me of my honours, said the Lord God. I caused myself to be worshipped in your stead. No evil was there but I practised it. No cruelty wherewith I did not stain my soul. And at last you smote me, O God. God raised his eyebrows slightly. And I was slain in battle. And so I stand before you, meet for your nethermost hell out of your greatness daring no lies daring no pleas but telling the truth of my iniquities before all mankind he ceased his face i saw distinctly and it seemed to me white and terrible and proud and strangely noble i thought of milton's satan most of that is from the obelisk said the recording angel finger on page it is said the tyrannous man with a faint touch of surprise then god suddenly bent forward and took this man in his hand and held him up on his palm as if to see him better It was just a little dark stroke in the middle of God's palm. "'Did he do all this?' said the Lord God. The recording angel flattened his book with his hand. "'In a way,' said the recording angel carelessly. Now, when I looked again at the little man, his face had changed. In a very curious manner, he was looking at the recording angel with a strange apprehension in his eyes, and one hand fluttered to his mouth, just the movement of a muscle or so, and all that dignity of defiance was gone. "'Read,' said the Lord God, and the angel read." explaining very carefully and fully all the wickedness of the wicked man. It was quite an intellectual treat, a little daring in places, I thought, but of course heaven has its privileges. Part 6 Everybody was laughing. Even the prophet of the Lord, whom the wicked man had tortured, had a smile on his face. The wicked man was really such a preposterous little fellow. And then, said the recording angel, with a smile that set us all agog, one day, when he was a little irascible from over-eating, he— Oh, not bad cried the wicked man— nobody knew of that it didn't happen screamed the wicked man i was bad i was really bad frequently bad but there was nothing so silly so absolutely silly the angel went on reading oh god cried the wicked man don't let them know that i'll repent i'll apologize the wicked man on god's hand began to dance and weep suddenly shame overcame him he made a wild rush to jump off the ball of god's little finger but god stopped him by a dexterous turn of the wrist then he made a rush for the gap between hand and thumb but the thumb closed and all the while the angel went on reading reading the wicked man rushed to and fro across god's palm and then suddenly turned about and fled up the sleeve of god i expected god would turn him out but the mercy of god is infinite the recording angel paused eh said the recording angel next said god and before the recording angel could call a name a hairy creature in filthy rags stood upon god's palm part seven has god got hell up his sleeve then said the little man beside me is there a hell i asked if you notice he said peering between the feet of the great angels. "'There's no particular indication of a celestial city,' said the little woman near us, scowling. "'Hear this blessed saint!' Part 8 "'He was lord of the earth, but I was the prophet of the God of heaven,' cried the saint. "'And all the people marvelled at the sign, for I, O God, knew of the glories of thy paradise. No pain, no hardship, gashing with knives, splinters thrust under my nails, strips of flesh flayed off, all for the glory and honour of God.' God smiled and at last i went i in my rags and sores smelling of my holy discomforts gabriel laughed abruptly and lay outside his gates as a sign as a wonder as a perfect nuisance said the recording angel and began to read heedless of the fact that the saint was still speaking of the gloriously unpleasant things he had done that paradise might be his and behold in that book the record of the saint also was a revelation a marvel It seemed not ten seconds, before the saint also was rushing to and fro over the great palm of God, not ten seconds, and at last he also shrieked beneath that pitiless and cynical exposition, and fled also, even as the wicked man had fled, into the shadow of the sleeve. And it was permitted us to see into the shadow of the sleeve, and the two sat side by side, stark of all delusions, in the shadow of the robe of God's charity, like brothers. And thither also I fled in my turn. Part 9 And now, said God, as he shook us out of his sleeve upon the planet he had given us to live upon, the planet that whirled about green Sirius for a sun. now that you understand me and each other a little better, try again. Then he and his great angels turned themselves about, and suddenly had vanished. The throne had vanished. All about me was a beautiful land, more beautiful than any I had ever seen before, waste, austere, and wonderful and all about me were the enlightened souls of men in a new, clean bodies. End of section 22 Section 23 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. Jimmy Goggles the God It isn't everyone who's been a god, said the sunburnt man. But it's happened to me among other things i intimated my sense of his condescension it don't leave much for ambition does it said the sunburnt man i was one of those men who were saved from the ocean pioneer gummy how time flies it's twenty years ago i doubt if you'll remember anything of the ocean pioneer the name was familiar and i tried to recall when and where i had read it the ocean pioneer something about gold dust i said vaguely but the process that's it he said in a beastly little channel she hadn't no business in dodging pirates it was before they'd put the kibosh on that business and there'd been volcanoes or something and all the rocks was wrong there's places about by sooner where you fair have to follow the rocks about to see where they're going next down she went in twenty fathoms before you could have dealt for whist with fifty thousand pounds worth of gold aboard it was said in one form or another survivors 3. I remember the case now, I said. There was something about salvage. But at the word salvage, the sunburnt man exploded into language so extraordinarily horrible that I stopped aghast. He came down to more ordinary swearing and pulled himself up abruptly. Excuse me, he said, but salvage. He leant over towards me. I was in that job, he said. Tried to make myself a rich man and— "'got made a god instead. "'I've got my feelings.' "'It ain't all jam being a god,' said the sunburnt man, "'and for some time conversed by means of such "'pithy but unprogressive axioms.' "'At last he took up his tale again. "'There was me,' said the sunburnt man, "'and a seaman named Jacobs, "'and always the mate of the ocean pioneer, "'and him it was that set the whole thing going. "'I remember him now. "'When we was in the jolly-boat,' "'suggesting it all to our minds, just by one sentence. "'He was a wonderful hand at suggesting things. "'There was forty thousand pounds,' he said, "'on that ship, and it's for me to say just where she went down.' "'It didn't need much brains to tumble to that, "'and he was the leader from the first to the last. "'He got hold of the Sanderses and their brig. "'They were brothers, and the brig was the pride of Banya, "'and he it was bought the diving dress.' a second-hand one, with a compressed air apparatus instead of pumping. He'd have done the diving, too, if it hadn't made him sick going down, and the salvage people were mucking about with a chart he'd cooked up, as solemn as can be at Star Race, 120 miles away. I can tell you we was a happy lot aboard that brig, jokes and drink and bright hopes all the time. It all seemed so neat and clean and straightforward, and what rough chaps call assert, and we used to speculate how the other blessed lot, the proper salvagers, who'd started two days before us, were getting on, until our sides fairly ached. We all messed together in the Sanders's cabin. It was a curious crew, all officers and no men, and there stood the diving dress waiting its turn. Young Sanders was a humorous sort of chap, and there certainly was something funny in the confounded thing's great fat head and its stare, and he made us see it, too. Jimmy Goggles, he used to call it, and talked to it like a Christian, asked if he was married, and how Mrs. Goggles was, and all the little goggleses, fits to make you split. And every blessed day all of us used to drink the health of Jimmy Goggles in rum, and unscrew his eye, and pour a glass of rum in him, until, instead of that nasty macintoshery he smelt as nice in his inside as a cask of rum. It was jolly times we had in those days, I can tell you. Little suspecting, poor chaps, what was a-coming. We weren't going to throw away our chances by any blessed hurry, you know, and we spent a whole day sounding our way towards where the ocean pioneer had gone down, right between two chunks of ropey grey rock, lava rocks, that rose nearly out of the water. We had to lay off about half a mile to get a safe anchorage, and there was a thundering row who should stop on board. And there she lay, just as she had gone down, so that you could see the top of the masts that was still standing perfectly distinctly. The row ended in all coming in the boat. I went down in the diving dress on Friday morning. Directly it was light. What a surprise it was. I can see it all now quite distinctly. It was a queer-looking place, and the light was just coming. People over here think every blessed place in the tropics is a flat shore and palm trees and surf, bless This place, for instance, wasn't a bit that way, not common rocks they were, undermined by waves, but great curved banks like ironwork cinder heaps, with green slime below, and thorny shrubs and things, just waving upon them here and there, and the water glassy, calm and clear, and showing you a kind of dirty grey-black shine, with huge flaring red-brown weeds spreading motionless, and crawling and darting things going through it, and far away, beyond the ditches and pools and the heaps, was a forest on the mountain flank, growing again, after the fires and cinder showers of the last eruption, and the other way forest too, and a kind of broken, what is it, ambitheatre of black and rusty cinders rising out of it all, and the sea in a kind of bay in the middle. The dawn, I say, was just coming, and there wasn't much colour about things, and not a human being but ourselves anywhere in sight, up or down the channel except the pride of banya lying out beyond a lump of rocks towards the line of the sea not a human being in sight he repeated and paused i don't know where they came from not a bit and we were feeling so safe that we were all alone that poor young sanders was a-singing i was in jimmy goggles all except the helmet easy says always there's a mast and after i'd had just one squint over the gunwale I caught up the bogey and almost tipped out as old Sanders brought the boat round. When the windows were screwed and everything was all right, I shut the valve from the air belt in order to help my sinking, and jumped overboard, feet foremost, for we hadn't a ladder. I left the boat pitching, and all of them staring down into the water after me, as my head sank down into the weeds and blackness that lay about the mast. I suppose nobody, not the most cautious chap in the world, would have bothered about a lookout at such a desolate place it stunk of solitude of course you must understand that i was a greenhorn at diving none of us were divers we'd had to muck about with the thing to get the way of it and this was the first time i'd been deep it feels damnable your ears hurt beastly i don't know if you've ever hurt yourself yawning or sneezing but it takes you like that only ten times worse and a pain over the eyebrows here splitting and a feeling like influenza in the head and it isn't all heaven in your lungs and things and going down feels like the beginning of a lift only it keeps on and you can't turn your head to see what's above you and you can't get a fair squint at what's happening to your feet without bending down something painful and being deep it was dark let alone the blackness of the ashes and mud that formed the bottom It was like going down out of the dawn back into the night, so to speak. The mast came up like a ghost out of the black, and then a lot of fishes, and then a lot of flapping red seaweed, and then whack! I came with a kind of dull bang on the deck of the ocean pioneer, and the fishes that had been feeding on the dead rose about me like a swarm of flies from roadstuff in summertime. I turned on the compressed air again, for the suit was a bit thick and mackintoshery after all in spite of the rum, and stood recovering myself. It struck coolish down there, and that helped take off the stuffiness a bit. When I began to feel easier, I started looking about me. It was an extraordinary sight. Even the light was extraordinary. A kind of reddy-coloured twilight, on account of the streams of seaweed that floated up on either side of the ship, and far overhead, just a moony, deep green-blue. The deck of the ship, except for a slight list to starboard, was level, and lay all dark and long between the weeds, clear except where the masts had snapped when she rolled, and vanishing into black night towards the forecastle. There wasn't any dead on the decks, most were in the weeds alongside, I suppose, but afterwards I found two skeletons lying in the passengers' cabins, where death had come to them. It was curious to stand on that deck and recognize it all, bit by bit a place against the rail where i'd been fond of smoking by starlight and the corner where an old chap from sydney used to flirt with a widow we had aboard a comfortable couple they'd been only a month ago and now you couldn't have got a meal for a baby crab off either of them i've always had a bit of a philosophical turn and i dare say i spent the best part of five minutes in such thoughts before i went below to find where the blessed dust was stored it was slow work hunting feeling it was, for the most part. Pitchy dark, with confusing blue gleams down the companion, and there were things moving about. A dab at my glass once, and once a pinch at my leg. Crabs, I expect. I kicked a lot of loose stuff that puzzled me, and stooped and picked up something all knobs and spikes. What do you think? Backbone. But I never had any particular feeling for bones. We had talked the affair over pretty thoroughly and always knew just where the stuff was stowed. I found it that trip. I lifted a box, one end, an inch or more. He broke off in his story. I've lifted it, he said, as near as that. Forty thousand pounds worth of pure gold. Gold, I shouted inside my helmet, as a kind of cheer, and hurt my ears. I was getting confounded, stuffy and tired by this time. I must have been down twenty-five minutes or more. And I thought this was good enough. I went up the companion again, and as my eyes came up flush with the deck, a thundering great crab gave a kind of hysterical jump and went scuttling off sideways. Quite a start it gave me. I stood up clear on deck and shut the valve behind the helmet to let the air accumulate to carry me up again. I noticed a kind of whacking from above, as though they were hitting the water with an oar, but I didn't look up. I fancied they were signalling me to come up and then something shot down by me, something heavy, and stood a quiver in the planks. I looked, and there was a long knife I'd seen young Sanders handling. Thinks I, he's dropped it, and I was still calling him this kind of fool and that, for it might have hurt me serious, when I began to lift and drive up towards the daylight. Just about the level of the top spars of the Ocean Pioneer, whack, I came against something sinking down, and a boot knocked in front of my helmet. Then something else, struggling, frightful. It was a big weight atop of me, whatever it was, and moving and twisting about. I'd have thought it was a big octopus or some such thing, if it hadn't been for the boot. But octopuses don't wear boots. It was all in a moment, of course. I felt myself sinking down again, and I threw my arms about to keep steady, and the whole lot rolled free of me and shot down as I went up. He paused. I saw young Sanders' face over a naked black shoulder and a spear driven clean through his neck, and out of his mouth and neck what looked like spurts of pink smoke in the water. And down they went, clutching one another and turning over, and both too far gone to leave go. And in another second my helmet came a whack, fit to split, against the niggers' canoe. It was niggers, two canoes full. It was lively times, I tell you. Overboard came always with three spears in him, there was the legs of three or four black chaps kicking about me in the water i couldn't see much but i saw the game was up at a glance gave my valve a tremendous twist and went bubbling down again after poor always in as awful a state of scare and astonishment as you can well imagine i passed young sanders and the nigger going up again and struggling still a bit and in another moment i was standing in the dim again on the deck of the ocean pioneer gummy thinks i here's a fix Niggers? At first I couldn't see anything for it, but stifle below or stabs above. I didn't properly understand how much air there was to last me out, but I didn't feel like standing very much more of it down below. I was hot and frightfully heady, quite apart from the blue funk I was in. We'd never reckoned with these beastly natives, filthy Papuan beasts. It wasn't any good coming up where I was, but I had to do something. On the spur of the moment, I clambered over the side of the brig, and landed among the weeds, and set off through the darkness as fast as I could. I just stopped once and knelt, and twisted my head back in the helmet, and had a look up. It was a most extraordinary bright blue-green above, and the two canoes and the boat floating there, very small and distinct, like a kind of twisted H, and it made me feel sick to squint up at it, and think what the pitching and swaying of the three meant." It was just about the most horrible ten minutes I ever had, blundering about in that darkness, pressure, something awful, like being buried in sand, pain across the chest, sick with funk, and breathing nothing as it seemed but the smell of rum and Mackintosh. Gummy! After a bit, I found myself going up a steepish sort of slope. I had another squint, to see if anything was visible of the canoes and boats, and then kept on. I stopped with my head a foot from the surface and tried to see where I was going, but of course nothing was to be seen but the reflection of the bottom. Then out I dashed, like knocking my head through a mirror. Directly I got my eyes out of the water. I saw I'd come up a kind of beach near the forest. I had a look round, but the natives and the brig were both hidden by a big hummocky heap of twisted lava. The born fool in me suggested a run for the woods. I didn't take the helmet off. But I eased open one of the windows, and after a bit of a pant, went on out of the water. You'd hardly imagine how clean and light the air tasted. Of course, with four inches of lead in your boot soles, and your head in a copper knob the size of a football, and been thirty-five minutes under water, you don't break any records running. I ran like a ploughboy going to work, and halfway to the trees I saw a dozen niggers or more coming out in a gaping, astonished sort of way, to meet me. I just stopped dead, and cursed myself for all the fools out of London. I had about as much chance of cutting back to the water as a turned turtle. I just screwed up my window again to leave my hands free, and waited for them. There wasn't anything else for me to do. But they didn't come on very much. I began to suspect why. Jimmy Goggles, I says, it's your beauty does it. I was inclined to be a little light-headed, I think, with all these dangers about, and the change in the pressure of the blessed air. "'Who are ye staring at?' I said, as if the savages could hear me. "'What would you take me for? I'm hanged if I don't give you something to stare at,' I said, and with that I screwed up the escape valve, and turned on the compressed air from the belt, until I was swelled out like a blown frog. Regular imposing, it must have been. I'm blessed if they'd come on a step, and presently, one and then another, went down on their hands and knees they didn't know what to make of me and they was doing the extra polite which was very wise and reasonable of them i had half a mind to edge back seaward and cut and run but it seemed too hopeless a step back and they'd have been after me and out of sheer desperation i began to march towards them up the beach with slow heavy steps and waving my blown-out arms about in a dignified manner and inside of me I was singing as small as a tomtit. But there's nothing like a striking appearance to help a man over a difficulty. I've found that before and since. People like ourselves who are up to diving dresses by the time we're seven can scarcely imagine the effect of one on a simple-minded savage. One or two of these niggers cut and run. The others started in a great hurry, trying to knock their brains out on the ground. And on I went, as slow and solemn and silly-looking and artful as a jobbing plumber it was evident they took me for something immense then up jumped one and began pointing making extraordinary gestures to me as he did so and all the others began sharing their attention between me and something out at sea what's the matter now i said i turned slowly on account of my dignity and there i saw coming round a point the poor old pride of banya towed by a couple of canoes the sight fairly made me sick but they evidently expected some recognition, so I waved my arms in a striking sort of non-committal manner, and then I turned and stalked on towards the trees again. At that time, I was praying like mad, I remember, over and over again. Lord, help me through with it. Lord, help me through with it. It's only fools who know nothing of danger can afford to laugh at praying. But these niggers weren't going to let me walk through and away like that, They started a kind of bowing dance about me and sort of pressed me to take a pathway that lay through the trees it was clear to me they didn't take me for a british citizen whatever else they thought of me and for my own part i was never less anxious to own up to the old country you'd hardly believe it perhaps unless you're familiar with savages but these poor misguided ignorant creatures took me straight to their kind of joss place "'to present me to the blessed old black stone there. "'By this time I was beginning to sort of realise "'the depths of their ignorance, "'and directly I set eyes on this deity. "'I took my cue. "'I started a baritone howl, "'wow, wow, very long on one note, "'and began waving my arms about a lot, "'and then very slowly and ceremoniously "'turned their image over on its side "'and sat down on it. "'I wanted to sit down badly.' for diving dresses ain't much wear in the tropics, or to put it different like, they're a sight too much. It took away their breath, I could see, my sitting on their joss, but in less time than a minute they made up their minds and were hard at work worshipping me, and I can tell you I felt a bit relieved to see things turning out so well, in spite of the weight on my shoulders and feet. But what made me anxious was what the chaps in the canoes might think when they came back. If they'd seen me in the boat before I went down, and without the helmet on—for they might have been spying and hiding since overnight—they would very likely take a different view from the others. I was in a deuce of a stew about that for hours, as it seemed, until the shindy of the arrival began. But they took it down. The whole blessed village took it down, at the cost of sitting up stiff and stern, as much like those sitting Egyptian images one sees as I could manage. For pretty near twelve hours, I should guess, at least, on end, I got over it. You'd hardly think what it meant in that heat and stink. I don't think any of them dreamt of the man inside. I was just a wonderful, leathery, great joss that had come up with luck out of the water. But the fatigue, the heat, the beastly closeness, the mackintosheriness, and the rum, and the fuss— They lit a stinking fire on a kind of lava slab there was before me, and brought in a lot of gory muck, the worst parts of what they were feasting on outside the beasts, and burnt it all in my honour. I was getting a bit hungry, but I understand now how gods manage to do without eating, what with the smell of burnt offerings about them. And they brought in a lot of the stuff they'd got off the brig, and among other stuff, what I was a bit relieved to see, the kind of pneumatic pump that was used for the compressed air affair and then a lot of chaps and girls came in and danced about me something disgraceful it's extraordinary the different ways different people have of showing respect if i'd had a hatchet handy i'd have gone for the lot of them they made me feel that wild all this time i sat as stiff as company not knowing anything better to do and at last When nightfall came and the Wattle Joss House place got a bit too shadowy for their taste, all these here savages are afraid of the dark, you know, and I started a sort of moo noise. They built big bonfires outside and left me alone in peace in the darkness of my hut, free to unscrew my windows a bit and think things over and feel just as bad as I liked. And, Lord, I was sick.' I was weak and hungry, and my mind kept on behaving like a beetle on a pin. Tremendous activity, and nothing done at the end of it, come round just where it was before. There was sorrowing for the other chaps, beastly drunkards certainly, but not deserving such a fate, and young Sanders with the spear through his neck wouldn't go out of my mind. There was the treasure down there in the Ocean Pioneer, and how one might get it and hide it somewhere safer, and get away and come back for it and there was the puzzle where to get anything to eat i tell you i was fair rambling i was afraid to ask by signs for food for fear of behaving too human and so there i sat and hungered until very near the dawn then the village got a bit quiet and i couldn't stand it any longer and i went out and got some stuff like artichokes in a bowl and some sour milk what was left of these i put away among the other offerings just to give them a hint of my tastes and in the morning they came to worship and found me sitting up stiff and respectable on their previous god, just as they'd left me overnight. I'd got my back against the central pillar of the hut, and practically I was asleep, and that's how I became a god among the heathen. False god, no doubt, and blasphemous, but one can't always pick and choose. Now, I don't want to crack myself up as a god beyond my merits, but I must confess that, while I was God to these people, they was extraordinarily successful. I don't say there's anything in it, mind you. They won a battle with another tribe. I got a lot of offerings I didn't want through it. They had wonderful fishing, and their crop of pura was exceptional fine, and they counted the capture of the brig among the benefits I brought them. I must say I don't think that was a poor record for a perfectly new hand and though perhaps you'd scarcely credit it i was the tribal god of those beastly savages for pretty nearly four months what else could i do man but i didn't wear that diving dress all the time i made em rig me up a sort of holy of holies and a deuce of a time i had too making them understand what it was i wanted them to do that indeed was the great difficulty making them understand my wishes I couldn't let myself down by talking their lingo badly, even if I'd been able to speak at all. And I couldn't go flapping a lot of gestures at them, so I drew pictures in sand and sat down beside them and hooted like one o'clock. Sometimes they did the things I wanted all right, and sometimes they did them all wrong. They was always very willing, certainly. All the time I was puzzling how I was to get the confounded business settled. Every night before the dawn, I used to march out in full rig and go off to a place where i could see the channel in which the ocean pioneer lay sunk and once even one moonlight night i tried to walk out to her but the weeds and rocks and dark clean beat me i didn't get back till full day and then i found all those silly niggers out on the beach praying their sea god to return to them i was that vexed and tired messing and tumbling about and coming up and going down again, I could have punched their silly heads all round when they started rejoicing, hanged if I like so much ceremony. And then came the missionary, that missionary, what a guy, gummy, it was in the afternoon, and I was sitting in state in my outer temple place, sitting on that old black stone of theirs, when he came. I heard a row outside and jabbering, and then his voice speaking to an interpreter, "'They worship stocks and stones,' he said, and I knew what was up in a flash. I had one of my windows out for comfort, and I sang out straight away on the spur of the moment. "'Stocks and stones,' I says. "'You come inside,' I says, "'and I'll punch your bloomin' exeter hall of a head.' There was a kind of silence and more jabbering, and in he came, Bible in hand, after the manner of them, a little sandy chap in specks and a pith helmet." I flatter myself that me sitting there in the shadows with my copper head and my big goggles struck him a bit of a heap at first. Well, I says, how's the trade in scissors? For I don't hold with missionaries. I had a lark with that missionary. He was a raw hand and quite outclassed by a man like me. He gasped out, who was I? And I told him to read the inscription at my feet if he wanted to know. There wasn't no inscription. Why should there be? but down he goes to read, and his interpreter, being, of course, as superstitious as any of them, more so by reason of his seeing missionary close to, took it for an act of worship, and plumped down like a shot. All my people gave a howl of triumph, and there wasn't any more business to be done in my village after that journey, not by the likes of him, but, of course, I was a fool to choke him off like that. If I'd had any sense, I should have told him straight away of the treasure and taken him into co. I've no doubt he'd have come into co. A child with a few hours to think it over could have seen the connection between my diving dress and the loss of the ocean pioneer. A week after he left, I went out one morning and saw the motherhood, the Salva's ship from Star Race, towing up the channel and sounding. The whole blessed game was up and all my trouble thrown away—gummy, how wild I felt—and guying it in that stinking silly dress four months. The sunburnt man's story degenerated again. Think of it, he said, when he emerged to linguistic purity once more. Forty thousand pounds worth of gold. Did the little missionary come back? I asked. Oh, yes, bless him and he pledged his reputation there was a man inside the god, and started out to see as much with tremendous ceremony. But wasn't. He got sold again. I always did hate scenes and explanations, and long before he came I was out of it all, going home to Banya along the coast, hiding in bushes by day, and thieving food from the villages by night. Only weapon, a spear. No clothes, no money, nothing. My face my fortune, as the saying is and just a squeak of eight thousand pounds of gold fifth share but the natives cut up rusty thank goodness because they thought it was him that had driven their luck away end of section twenty three section twenty four of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by Peter Yearsley. Miss Winchelsea's Heart Miss Winchelsea was going to Rome. The matter had filled her mind for a month or more, and had overflowed so abundantly into her conversation that quite a number of people who were not going to Rome, and who were not likely to go to Rome, had made it a personal grievance against her. Some, indeed, had attempted quite unavailingly to convince her that Rome was not nearly such a desirable place as it was reported to be, and others had gone so far as to suggest behind her back that she was dreadfully stuck up about that Rome of hers, and little Lily Hardhurst had told her friend Mr. Binns that, so far as she was concerned, Miss Wintlesey might go to her old Rome and stop there. She, Miss Lily Hardhurst, wouldn't grieve and the way in which miss winchelsea put herself upon terms of personal tenderness with horace and benvenuto cellini and Raphael and shelley and keats if she had been shelley's widow she could not have professed a keener interest in his grave was a matter of universal astonishment her dress was a triumph of tactful discretion sensible but not too touristy miss wintlesey had a great dread of being touristy and her baedeker was carried in a cover of grey to hide its glaring red she made a prim and pleasant little figure on the charing cross platform in spite of her swelling pride when at last the great day dawned and she could start for rome the day was bright the channel passage would be pleasant and all the omens promised well. There was the gayest sense of adventure in this unprecedented departure. She was going with two friends, who had been fellow-students with her at the training college. Nice, honest girls both, though not so good at history and literature as Miss Winchelsea. They both looked up to her immensely, though physically they had to look down, and she anticipated some pleasant times to be spent in stirring them up to her own pitch of aesthetic and historical enthusiasm they had secured seats already and welcomed her effusively at the carriage door in the instant criticism of the encounter she noted that fanny had a slightly touristy leather strap and that helen had succumbed to a serge jacket with side pockets into which her hands were thrust but they were much too happy with themselves and the expedition for their friends to attempt any hint, at the moment, about these things. As soon as the first ecstasies were over, Fanny's enthusiasm was a little noisy and crude, and consisted mainly in emphatic repetitions of, Just fancy! We're going to Rome, my dear! Rome! They gave their attention to their fellow travellers helen was anxious to secure a compartment to themselves and in order to discourage intruders got out and planted herself firmly on the step miss winchelsea peeped out over her shoulder and made sly little remarks about the accumulating people on the platform at which fanny laughed gleefully they were travelling with one of mr thomas gunn's parties fourteen days in rome for fourteen pounds They did not belong to the personally conducted party, of course—Miss Winchelsea had seen to that—but they travelled with it because of the convenience of that arrangement. The people were the oddest mixture, and wonderfully amusing. There was a vociferous red-faced polyglot personal conductor, in a pepper-and-salt suit, very long in the arms and legs, and very active. He shouted proclamations. When he wanted to speak to people he stretched out an arm and held them until his purpose was accomplished one hand was full of papers tickets counterfoils of tourists the people of the personally conducted party were it seemed of two sorts people the conductor wanted and could not find and people he did not want and who followed him in a steadily growing tail up and down the platform these people seemed indeed To think that their one chance of reaching rome lay in keeping close to him three little old ladies were particularly energetic in his pursuit and at last maddened him to the pitch of clapping them into a carriage and daring them to emerge again for the rest of the time one two or three of their heads protruded from the window wailing inquiries about a little wicker workbox whenever he drew near there was a very stout man with a very stout wife in shiny black there was a little old man like an aged hostler what can such people want in rome asked miss winchelsea what can it mean to them there was a very tall curate in a very small straw hat and a very short curate encumbered by a long camera stand the contrast amused fanny very much Once they heard someone calling for snooks i always thought that name was invented by novelists said miss winchelsea fancy snooks i wonder which is mr snooks finally they picked out a very stout and resolute little man in a large check suit if he isn't snooks he ought to be said miss winchelsea presently the conductor discovered helen's attempt at a corner in carriages room for five he bawled with a parallel translation on his fingers a party of four together mother father and two daughters blundered in all greatly excited it's all right ma you let me said one of the daughters hitting her mother's bonnet with a handbag she struggled to put in the rack miss winchelsea detested people who banged about and called their mother ma a young man travelling alone followed he was not at all touristy in his costume miss winchelsea observed his gladstone bag was of good pleasant leather with labels reminiscent of luxembourg and ostend and his boots though brown were not vulgar he carried an overcoat on his arm before these people had properly settled in their places came an inspection of tickets and a slamming of doors and behold They were gliding out of charing cross station on their way to rome fancy cried fanny we are going to rome my dear rome i don't seem to believe it even now miss winchelsea suppressed fanny's emotions with a little smile and the lady who was called ma explained to people in general why they had cut it so close at the station the two daughters called her ma several times toned her down in a tactless effective way and drove her at last to the muttered inventory of a basket of travelling requisites presently she looked up "Law," she said i didn't bring them both the daughters said oh ma but what them was did not appear presently fanny produced hare's walks in rome a sort of mitigated guidebook very popular among roman visitors and the father of the two daughters began to examine his books of tickets minutely apparently in a search after english words when he had looked at the tickets for a long time right way up he turned them upside down then he produced a fountain pen and dated them with considerable care the young man having completed an unostentatious survey of his fellow travellers produced a book and fell to reading when helen and fanny were looking out of the window at chislehurst the place interested fanny because the poor dear empress of the french used to live there miss winchelsea took the opportunity to observe the book the young man held it was not a guide-book but a little thin volume of poetry bound she glanced at his face it seemed a refined pleasant face to her hasty glance he wore a little gilt pince-nez do you think she lives there now said fanny and miss winchelsea's inspection came to an end for the rest of the journey miss winchelsea talked little and what she said was as agreeable and as stamped with refinement as she could make it her voice was always low and clear and pleasant and she took care that on this occasion it was particularly low and clear and pleasant as they came under the white cliffs The young man put his book of poetry away, and when at last the train stopped beside the boat, he displayed a graceful alacrity with the impedimenta of Miss Winchelsea and her friends. Miss Winchelsea hated nonsense, but she was pleased to see the young man perceived at once that they were ladies, and helped them without any violent geniality, and how nicely he showed that his civilities were to be no excuse for further intrusions none of her little party had been out of england before and they were all excited and a little nervous at the channel passage they stood in a little group in a good place near the middle of the boat the young man had taken miss winchelsea's carry-all there and had told her it was a good place and they watched the white shores of albion recede and quoted shakespeare and made quiet fun of their fellow-travellers in the English way. They were particularly amused at the precautions the bigger-sized people had taken against the little waves. Cut lemons and flasks prevailed. One lady lay full length in a deck-chair with a handkerchief over her face, and a very broad, resolute man in a bright-brown touristy suit walked all the way from England to France along the deck, with his legs as widely apart as providence permitted. These were all excellent precautions, and nobody was ill. The personally conducted party pursued the conductor about the deck with inquiries, in a manner that suggested to Helen's mind the rather vulgar image of hens with a piece of bacon rind, until at last he went into hiding below. And the young man with the thin volume of poetry stood at the stern, watching england receding looking rather lonely and sad to miss winchelsea's eye and then came calais and tumultuous novelties and the young man had not forgotten miss winchelsea's holdall and all the other little things all three girls though they had passed government examinations in french to any extent were stricken with a dumb shame of their accents and the young man was very useful and he did not intrude He put them in a comfortable carriage, and raised his hat, and went away. Miss Winchelsea thanked him in her best manner—a pleasing, cultivated manner. And Fanny said he was nice almost before he was out of earshot. "'I wonder what he can be,' said Helen. "'He's going to Italy because I noticed green tickets in his book.' Miss Winchelsea almost told them of the poetry, and decided not to do so and presently the carriage windows seized hold upon them, and the young man was forgotten. It made them feel that they were doing an educated sort of thing to travel through a country whose commonest advertisements were in idiomatic French, and Miss Winchelsea made unpatriotic comparisons because there were weedy little signboard advertisements by the railside, instead of the broad hoardings that defaced the landscape in our land. BUT THE NORTH OF FRANCE IS REALLY UNINTERESTING COUNTRY, AND AFTER A TIME FANNY REVERTED TO hares, WALKS, AND HELEN INITIATED LUNCH. Miss Winchelsea awoke out of a happy reverie. SHE HAD BEEN TRYING TO REALIZE, SHE SAID, THAT SHE WAS ACTUALLY GOING TO ROME, BUT SHE PERCEIVED AT HELEN'S SUGGESTION THAT SHE WAS HUNGRY, AND THEY LUNCHED OUT OF THEIR BASKETS VERY CHEERFULLY. IN THE AFTERNOON THEY WERE TIRED AND SILENT until helen made tea miss winchelsea might have dozed only she knew fanny slept with her mouth open and as their fellow passengers were two rather nice critical looking ladies of uncertain age who knew french well enough to talk it she employed herself in keeping fanny awake the rhythm of the train became insistent and the streaming landscape outside became at last quite painful to the eye they were already dreadfully tired of travelling before their night's stoppage came the stoppage for the night was brightened by the appearance of the young man and his manners were all that could be desired and his french quite serviceable his coupons availed for the same hotel as theirs and by chance as it seemed he sat next miss winchelsea at the table d'hote In spite of her enthusiasm for Rome, she had thought out some such possibility very thoroughly, and when he ventured to make a remark upon the tediousness of travelling, he let the soup and fish go by before he did this. She did not simply assent to his proposition, but responded with another. They were soon comparing their journeys, and Helen and Fanny were cruelly overlooked in the conversation. It was to be the same journey they found one day for the galleries at florence from what i hear said the young man it is barely enough and the rest at rome he talked of rome very pleasantly he was evidently quite well read and he quoted horace about soracte miss winchelsea had done that book of horace for her matriculation and was delighted to cap his quotation it gave a sort of tone to things this incident a touch of refinement to mere chatting fanny expressed a few emotions and helen interpolated a few sensible remarks but the bulk of the talk on the girl's side naturally fell to miss winchelsea before they reached rome this young man was tacitly of their party they did not know his name nor what he was but it seemed he taught and miss winchelsea had a shrewd idea he was an extension lecturer. At any rate, he was something of that sort, something gentlemanly and refined, without being opulent and impossible. She tried once or twice to ascertain whether he came from Oxford or Cambridge, but he missed her timid opportunities. She tried to get him to make remarks about those places, to see if he would say, "'Come up to them,' instead of, "'Go down,' She knew that was how you told a varsity man. He used the word varsity, not university, in quite the proper way. They saw as much of Mr. Ruskin's Florence as the brief time permitted. He met them in the pity gallery, and went round with them, chatting brightly, and evidently very grateful for their recognition. He knew a great deal about art, and all four enjoyed the morning immensely. It was fine to go around, recognizing old favorites, and finding new beauties, especially while so many people fumbled helplessly with Baedeker. Nor was he a bit of a prig, Miss he said, and indeed she detested prigs. He had a distinct undertone of humor, and was sunny, for example, without being vulgar, at the expense of the quaint work of Beato Angelico. He had a grave seriousness beneath it all and was quick to seize the moral lessons of the pictures. Fanny went softly among these masterpieces. She admitted she knew so little about them, and she confessed that to her they were all beautiful. Fanny's beautiful inclined to be a little monotonous, Miss Winchelsea thought. She had been quite glad when the last sunny Alp had vanished because of the staccato of Fanny's admiration Helen said little, but Miss Winchelsea had found her a trifle wanting on the aesthetic side in the old days, and was not surprised. Sometimes she laughed at the young man's hesitating delicate jests, and sometimes she didn't, and sometimes she seemed quite lost to the art about them, in the contemplation of the dresses of the other visitors. At Rome the young man was with them intermittently. A rather touristy friend of his took him away at times he complained comically to miss winchelsea i have only two short weeks in rome he said and my friend leonard wants to spend a whole day at tivoli looking at a waterfall what is your friend leonard asked miss winchelsea abruptly he's the most enthusiastic pedestrian i ever met the young man replied amusingly but a little unsatisfactorily miss winchelsea thought they had some glorious times and fanny could not think what they would have done without him miss winchelsea's interest and fanny's enormous capacity for admiration were insatiable they never flagged through pictures and sculpture galleries immense crowded churches ruins and museums judas trees and prickly pears wine carts and palaces they admired their way unflinchingly they never saw a stone pine or a eucalyptus but they named and admired it they never glimpsed soracte but they exclaimed their common ways were made wonderful by imaginative play here caesar may have walked they would say raphael may have seen Seracte from this very point they happened on the tomb of bibulus old bibulus said the young man the oldest monument of republican rome said miss winchelsea i'm dreadfully stupid said fanny but who was bibulus there was a curious little pause wasn't he the person who built the wall said helen the young man glanced quickly at her and laughed that was balbus he said helen reddened but neither he nor Miss Winchelsea threw any light upon Fanny's ignorance about Bibulus. Helen was more taciturn than the other three, but then she was always taciturn, and usually she took care of the tram tickets and things like that, or kept her eye on them, if the young man took them, and told him where they were when he wanted them. Glorious times they had, these young people! in that pale brown cleanly city of memories that was once the world their only sorrow was the shortness of the time they said indeed that the electric trams and the seventy buildings and that criminal advertisement that glares upon the forum outraged their aesthetic feelings unspeakably but that was only part of the fun and indeed rome is such a wonderful place that it made miss winchelsea forget some of her most carefully prepared enthusiasms at times and helen taken unawares would suddenly admit the beauty of unexpected things yet fanny and helen would have liked a shop window or so in the english quarter if miss winchelsea's uncompromising hostility to all other english visitors had not rendered that district impossible the intellectual and aesthetic fellowship of miss winchelsea and the scholarly young man passed insensibly towards a deeper feeling the exuberant fanny did her best to keep pace with their recondite admiration by playing her beautiful with vigour and saying oh let's go with enormous appetite whenever a new place of interest was mentioned but helen developed a certain want of sympathy towards the end that disappointed miss winchelsea a little she refused to see anything in the face of beatrice cenci shelley's beatrice cenci in the barberini gallery and one day when they were deploring the electric trams she said rather snappishly that people must get about somehow and it's better than torturing horses up these horrid little hills she spoke of the seven hills of rome as horrid little hills and the day they went on to the palatine though miss winchelsea did not know of this she remarked suddenly to fanny don't hurry like that my dear they don't want us to overtake them and we don't say the right things for them when we do get near i wasn't trying to overtake them said fanny slackening her excessive pace i wasn't indeed and for a minute she was short of breath. But Miss Winchelsea had come upon happiness. It was only when she came to look back across an intervening tragedy that she quite realized how happy she had been, pacing among the cypress-shadowed ruins and exchanging the very highest class of information the human mind can possess, the most refined impressions it is possible to convey. Insensibly, emotion crept into their intercourse, sunning itself openly and pleasantly at last when helen's modernity was not too near insensibly their interest drifted from the wonderful associations about them to their more intimate and personal feelings in a tentative way information was supplied she spoke elusively of her school of her examination successes of her gladness that the days of cram were over he made it quite clear that he also was a teacher they spoke of the greatness of their calling of the necessity of sympathy to face its irksome details of a certain loneliness they sometimes felt that was in the coliseum and it was as far as they got that day because helen returned with fanny she had taken her into the upper galleries Yet. The private dreams of Miss Winchelsea, already vivid and concrete enough, became now realistic in the highest degree. She figured that pleasant young man lecturing in the most edifying way to his students, herself modestly prominent as his intellectual mate and helper. She figured a refined little home, with two bureaus, with white shelves of high-class books and autotypes of the pictures of Rossetti and Burne-Jones with Morris's wallpapers, and flowers in pots of beaten copper. Indeed, she figured many things. On the Pincio, the two had a few precious moments together, while, while Helen marched Fanny off to see the Muro Torto, and he spoke at once plainly. He said he hoped their friendship was only beginning, that he already found her company very precious to him, that indeed it was more than that. He became nervous, thrusting at his glasses with trembling fingers, as though he fancied his emotions made them unstable. I should, of course, he said, tell you things about myself. I know it is rather unusual my speaking to you like this, only our meeting has been so accidental, or providential, and I am snatching at things. I came to Rome expecting a lonely tour, and I have been so very happy, so very happy. Quite recently I have found myself in a position, I have dared to think, and—' He glanced over his shoulder and stopped. He said, "'Damn!' quite distinctly, and she did not condemn him for that manly lapse into profanity. She looked and saw his friend Leonard advancing. He drew nearer. He raised his hat to Miss Winchelsea, and his smile was almost a grin. "'I've been looking for you everywhere, Snooks,' he said. "'You promised to be on the piazza steps half an hour ago.' "'Snooks!' the name struck Miss Winchelsea like a blow in the face. She did not hear his reply. She thought afterwards that Leonard must have considered her the vaguest-minded person. To this day she is not sure whether she was introduced to Leonard or not, nor what she said to him. A sort of mental paralysis was upon her, of all offensive surnames, Snooks. Helen and Fanny were returning. There were civilities, and the young men were receding. By a great effort she controlled herself to face the inquiring eyes of her friends. All that afternoon she lived the life of a heroine under the Indescribable outrage of that name, Chatting, observing, with snooks Gnawing at her heart. From the moment that it first rang upon her ears, The dream of her happiness was prostrate in the dust. All the refinement she had figured Was ruined and defaced By that cognomen's unavoidable vulgarity. What was that refined little home to her now? spite of autotypes, Morris papers, and bureaus. Athwart it, in letters of fire, ran an incredible inscription, Mrs. Snooks. That may seem a little thing to the reader, but consider the delicate refinement of Miss Winchelsea's mind. Be as refined as you can, and then think of writing yourself down, Snooks. She conceived herself being addressed as mrs snooks by all the people she liked least conceived the patronymic touched with a vague quality of insult she figured a card of grey and silver bearing winchelsea triumphantly effaced by an arrow cupid's arrow in favour of snooks degrading confession of feminine weakness She imagined the terrible rejoicings of certain girlfriends, of certain grosser cousins, from whom her growing refinement had long since estranged her. How they would make it sprawl across the envelope that would bring their sarcastic congratulations. Would even his pleasant company compensate her for that? "'It is impossible,' she muttered. "'Impossible! Snooks!' she was sorry for him but not so sorry as she was for herself for him she had a touch of indignation to be so nice so refined while all the time he was snooks to hide under a pretentious gentility of demeanour the badge sinister of his surname seemed a sort of treachery to put it in the language of sentimental science she felt he had led her on there were, of course, moments of terrible vacillation, a period even when something almost like passion bid her throw refinement to the winds, and there was something in her, an unexpurgated vestige of vulgarity, that made a strenuous attempt at proving that Snooks was not so very bad a name after all. Any hovering hesitation flew before fanny's manner when fanny came with an air of catastrophe to tell that she also knew the horror fanny's voice fell to a whisper when she said snooks miss winchelsea would not give him any answer when at last in the borghese she could have a minute with him but she promised him a note she handed that note in the little book of poetry he had lent her the little book that had first drawn them together her refusal was ambiguous elusive she could no more tell him why she rejected him than she could have told a cripple of his hump he too must feel something of the unspeakable quality of his name indeed he had avoided a dozen chances of telling it she now perceived so she spoke of obstacles she could not reveal reasons why the thing he spoke of was impossible she addressed the note with a shiver e k snooks things were worse than she had dreaded he asked her to explain how could she explain those last two days in rome were dreadful she was haunted by his air of astonished perplexity she knew she had given him intimate hopes, she had not the courage to examine her mind thoroughly for the extent of her encouragement. She knew he must think her the most changeable of beings. Now that she was in full retreat, she would not even perceive his hints of a possible correspondence. But in that matter he did a thing that seemed to her at once delicate and romantic. He made a go-between of Fanny." Fanny could not keep the secret, and came and told her that night, under a transparent pretext of needing advice. "'Mr. Snooks,' said Fanny, "'wants to write to me. Fancy, I had no idea. But should I let him?' They talked it over long and earnestly, and Miss Winchelsea was careful to keep the veil over her heart. She was already repenting his disregarded hints. Why should she not hear of him?' sometimes painful though his name must be to her miss winchelsea decided that it might be permitted and fanny kissed her good night with unusual emotion after she had gone miss winchelsea sat for a long time at the window of her little room it was moonlight and down the street a man sang santa lucia with almost heart dissolving tenderness she sat very still she breathed a word very softly to herself the word was Snooks. Then she got up with a profound sigh and went to bed. The next morning he said to her meaningly, I shall hear of you through your friend. Mr. Snooks saw them off from Rome with that pathetic interrogative perplexity still on his face, and if it had not been for Helen he would have retained Miss hold holdall in his hand as a sort of encyclopedic keepsake on their way back to england miss winchelsea on six separate occasions made fanny promise to write to her the longest of long letters fanny it seemed would be quite near mr snooks her new school she was always going to new schools would be only five miles from steely bank and it was in the steely bank polytechnic and one or two first-class schools that mr snooks did his teaching he might even see her at times they could not talk much of him she and fanny always spoke of him never of mr snooks because helen was apt to say unsympathetic things about him her nature had coarsened very much miss winchelsea perceived since the old training college days she had become hard and cynical she thought he had a weak face mistaking refinement for weakness as people of her stamp are apt to do and when she heard his name was snooks she said she had expected something of the sort miss winchelsea was careful to spare her own feelings after that but fanny was less circumspect the girls parted in london and miss winchelsea returned with a new interest in life to the girls high school in which she had been an increasingly valuable assistant for the last three years her new interest in life was fanny as a correspondent and to give her a lead she wrote her a lengthy descriptive letter within a fortnight of her return fanny answered very disappointingly fanny indeed had no literary gift but it was new to miss winchelsea to find herself deploring the want of gifts in a friend that letter was even criticised aloud in the safe solitude of miss winchelsea's study and her criticism spoken with great bitterness was toddle it was full of just the things miss winchelsea's letter had been full of particulars of the school and of mr snooks only this much i have had a letter from mr snooks and he has been over to see me on two saturday afternoons running he talked about rome and you we both talked about you your ears must have burnt my dear miss winchelsea repressed the desire to demand more explicit information and wrote the sweetest long letter again Tell me all about yourself, dear. That journey has quite refreshed our ancient friendship, and I do so want to keep in touch with you. About Mr. Snooks, she simply wrote on the fifth page that she was glad Fanny had seen him, and that, if he should ask after her, she was to be remembered to him very kindly underlined. And Fanny replied most obtusely in the key of that ancient friendship, reminding miss winchelsea of a dozen foolish things of those old schoolgirl days at the training college and saying not a word about mr snooks for nearly a week miss winchelsea was so angry at the failure of fanny as a go-between that she could not write to her and then she wrote less effusively and in her letter she asked point-blank have you seen mr snooks fanny's letter was unexpectedly satisfactory i have seen mr snooks she wrote and having once named him she kept on about him it was all snooks snooks this and snooks that he was to give a public lecture said fanny among other things yet miss winchelsea after the first glow of gratification still found this letter a little unsatisfactory fanny did not report mr snooks as saying anything about miss winchelsea nor as looking a little white and worn as he ought to have been doing and behold before she had replied came a second letter from fanny on the same theme quite a gushing letter and covering six sheets with her loose feminine hand and about this second letter was a rather odd little thing that miss winchelsea only noticed as she re-read it the third time fanny's natural femininity had prevailed even against the round and clear traditions of the training college. She was one of those she-creatures born to make all her M's and N's and U's and R's and E's alike, and to leave her O's and A's open and her I's undotted, so that it was only after an elaborate comparison of word with word that Miss Winchelsea felt assured Mr. Snooks was not really Mr. Snooks at all. In Fanny's first letter of gush, he was Mr. Snooks. In her second, the spelling was changed to Mr. Snox. Miss Winchelsea's hand positively trembled as she turned the sheet over. It meant so much to her, for it had already begun to seem to her that even the name of Mrs. Snooks might be avoided at too great a price and suddenly this possibility she turned over the six sheets all dappled with that critical name and everywhere the first letter had the form of an e for a time she walked the room with a hand pressed upon her heart she spent a whole day pondering this change weighing a letter of inquiry that should be at once discreet and effectual weighing too what action she should take after the answer came she was resolved that if this altered spelling was anything more than a quaint fancy of fanny's she should write forthwith to mr snooks she had now reached a stage when minor refinements of behaviour disappear her excuse remained uninvented but she had the subject of her letter clear in her mind even to the hint that circumstances in my life have changed very greatly since we talked together (laughs) but she never gave that hint there came a third letter from that fitful correspondent fanny the first line proclaimed her the happiest girl alive miss winchelsea crushed the letter in her hand the rest unread and sat with her face suddenly very still she had received it just before morning school and had opened it when the junior mathematicians were well under way presently she resumed reading with an appearance of great calm But, after the first sheet, she went on reading the third, without discovering the error. "'Told him frankly I did not like his name,' the third sheet began. "'He told me that he did not like it himself. You know that sort of sudden, frank way he has. Miss Winchelsea did know.' So I said, "'Couldn't you change it?' He didn't see it at first. "'Well, you know, dear, he had told me what it really meant. It means Sevenoaks.' only it has got down to snooks both snooks and noakes dreadfully vulgar surnames though they be are really worn forms of sevenoaks so i said even i have my bright ideas at times if it got down from sevenoaks to snooks why not get it back from snooks to sevenoaks and the long and the short of it dear he couldn't refuse me and he changed his spelling there and then to senox for the bills of the new lecture and afterwards, when we are married, we shall put in the apostrophe, and make it set noakes. would not it kind of him to mind that fancy of mine, when many men would have taken offence? But it is just like him all over. He is as kind as he is clever, because he knew as well as I did, that I would have had him in spite of it, had he been ten times snooks. But he did it all the same, the class was startled by the sound of paper being viciously torn, and looked up to see Miss Winchelsea white in the face and with some very small pieces of paper clenched in one hand. For a few seconds they stared at her stare, and then her expression changed back to a more familiar one. "'Has anyone finished number three?' she asked in an even tone. She remained calm after that, but impositions ruled high that day and she spent two laborious evenings writing letters of various sorts to Fanny, before she found a decent congratulatory vein. Her reason struggled hopelessly against the persuasion that Fanny had behaved in an exceedingly treacherous manner. One may be extremely refined and still capable of a very sore heart. Certainly Miss Winchelsea's heart was very sore, she had moods of sexual hostility in which she generalised uncharitably about mankind he forgot himself with me she said but fanny is pink and pretty and soft and a fool a very excellent match for a man and by way of a wedding present she sent fanny a gracefully bound volume of poetry by george meredith and fanny wrote back a grossly happy letter to say that it was all beautiful miss winchelsea hoped that some day mr sennox might take up that slim book and think for a moment of the donor fanny wrote several times before and about her marriage pursuing that fond legend of their ancient friendship and giving her happiness in the fullest detail and miss winchelsea wrote to helen for the first time after the roman journey saying nothing about the marriage but expressing very cordial feelings they had been in rome at easter and fanny was married in the august vacation she wrote a garrulous letter to miss winchelsea describing her homecoming and the astonishing arrangements of their teeny weeny little house mr sennox was now beginning to assume a refinement in miss winchelsea's memory out of all proportion to the facts of the case and she tried in vain to imagine his cultured greatness in a teeny-weeny little house i'm busy enamelling a cosy corner said fanny sprawling to the end of her third sheet so excuse more miss winchelsea answered in her best style gently poking fun at fanny's arrangements and hoping intensely that mr sennox might see the letter only this hope enabled her to write at all answering not only that letter but one in november and one at christmas the two latter communications contained urgent invitations for her to come to steely bank on a visit during the christmas holidays she tried to think that he had told her to ask that but it was too much like fanny's opulent good nature She could not but believe that he must be sick of his blunder by this time, and she had more than a hope that he would presently write her a letter, beginning, Dear Friend. Something subtly tragic in the separation was a great support to her, a sad misunderstanding. To have been jilted would have been intolerable. But he never wrote that letter, beginning, Dear Friend for two years miss winchelsea could not go to see her friends in spite of the reiterated invitations of mrs sevenoaks it became full sevenoaks in the second year then one day near the easter rest she felt lonely and without a soul to understand her in the world and her mind ran once more on what is called platonic friendship fanny was clearly happy and busy in her new sphere of domesticity, but no doubt he had his lonely hours. Did he ever think of those days in Rome, gone now beyond recalling? No one had understood her as he had done, no one in all the world. It would be a sort of melancholy pleasure to talk to him again, and what harm could it do? Why should she deny herself? That night she wrote a sonnet all but the last two lines of the octave, which would not come, and the next day she composed a graceful little note to tell Fanny she was coming down, and so she saw him again. Even at the first encounter it was evident he had changed. He seemed stouter and less nervous, and it speedily appeared that his conversation had already lost much of its old delicacy there even seemed a justification for helen's description of weakness in his face. in certain lights it was weak he seemed busy and preoccupied about his affairs and almost under the impression that miss winchelsea had come for the sake of fanny he discussed his dinner with fanny in an intelligent way they only had one good long talk together and that came to nothing he did not refer to rome and spent some time abusing a man Who had stolen an idea he had had for a textbook. It did not seem a very wonderful idea to Miss Winchelsea. She discovered he had forgotten the names of more than half the painters whose work they had rejoiced over in Florence. It was a sadly disappointing week, and Miss Winchelsea was glad when it came to an end. Under various excuses, she avoided visiting them again after a time the visitors room was occupied by their two little boys and fanny's invitations ceased the intimacy of her letters had long since faded away end of section twenty four section 25 of the country of the blind and other stories by hg wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley a dream of armageddon the man with the white face entered the carriage at rugby he moved slowly in spite of the urgency of his porter and even while he was still on the platform i noted how ill he seemed he dropped into the corner over against me with a sigh made an incomplete attempt to arrange his travelling shawl and became motionless with his eyes staring vacantly presently he was moved by a sense of my observation looked up at me and put out a spiritless hand for his newspaper then he glanced again in my direction i feigned to read i feared i had unwittingly embarrassed him and in a moment i was surprised to find him speaking i beg your pardon said i that book he repeated pointing a lean finger is about dreams obviously i answered for it was fortnum roscoe's dream states and the title was on the cover he hung silent for a space as if he sought words yes he said at last but they tell you nothing i did not catch his meaning for a second they don't know he added I looked a little more attentively at his face. There are dreams, he said, and dreams. That sort of proposition I never dispute. I suppose, he hesitated, do you ever dream, I mean vividly? I dream very little, I answered. I doubt if I have three vivid dreams in a year. Ah, he said, and seemed for a moment to collect his thoughts. Your dreams don't mix with your memories, he asked abruptly you don't find yourself in doubt did this happen or did it not hardly ever except just for a momentary hesitation now and then i suppose few people do does he say he indicated the book says it happens at times and gives the usual explanation about intensity of impression and the like to account for its not happening as a rule i suppose you know something of these theories very little except that they are wrong his emaciated hand played with the strap of the window for a time i prepared to resume reading and that seemed to precipitate his next remark he leant forward almost as though he would touch me isn't there something called consecutive dreaming that goes on night after night i believe there is there are cases given in most books on mental trouble mental trouble yes i dare say there are it's the right place for them but what i mean He looked at his bony knuckles. "'Is that sort of thing always dreaming? Is it dreaming? Or is it something else? Mightn't it be something else?' I should have snubbed his persistent conversation, but for the drawn anxiety of his face. I remember now the look of his faded eyes and the lids red-stained. Perhaps you know that look. "'I'm not just arguing about a matter of opinion,' he said. "'The thing's killing me.' "'Dreams?' if you call them dreams. Night after night. Vivid, so vivid. This, he indicated the landscape that went streaming by the window, seems unreal in comparison. I can scarcely remember who I am, what business I am on. He paused. Even now. The dream is always the same, do you mean? I asked. It's over. You mean? I died. Died? Smashed and killed. And now so much of me as that dream was is dead dead forever. I dreamt I was another man, you know, living in a different part of the world, and in a different time. I dreamt that night after night, night after night, I woke into that other life, fresh scenes and fresh happenings, until I came upon the last. When you died? When I died. And since then? No, he said. Thank God, that was the end of the dream. It was clear I was in for this dream, And, after all, I had an hour before me. The light was fading fast, and Fortnum Roscoe has a dreary way with him. "'Living in a different time,' I said. "'Do you mean in some different age?' "'Yes.' "'Past?' "'No. "'To come. "'To come.' "'The year three thousand, for example?' "'I don't know what year it was. "'I did when I was asleep, when I was dreaming, that is. "'But not now. "'Not now that I'm awake.' there's a lot of things i have forgotten since i woke out of these dreams though i knew them at the time when i was-i suppose it was dreaming they called the year differently from our way of calling the year what did they call it he put his hand to his forehead no said he i forget he sat smiling weakly for a moment i feared he did not mean to tell me his dream as a rule i hate people who tell me their dreams but this struck me differently i proffered assistance even It began, I suggested. It was vivid from the first. I seemed to wake up in it suddenly, and it's curious that, in these dreams I am speaking of, I never remembered this life I'm living now. It seems as if the dream life was enough while it lasted. Perhaps—but I will tell you how I find myself when I do my best to recall it all. I don't remember anything clearly until I found myself sitting in a sort of loggia, looking out over the sea. I had been dozing and suddenly i woke up fresh and vivid not a bit dreamlike because the girl had stopped fanning me the girl yes the girl you must not interrupt or you'll put me out he stopped abruptly you won't think i'm mad he said no i answered you've been dreaming tell me your dream i woke up i say because the girl had stopped fanning me i was not surprised to find myself there or anything of that sort you understand I did not feel I'd fallen into it suddenly. I simply took it up at that point. Whatever memory I had of this life, this nineteenth-century life, faded as I woke, vanished like a dream. I knew all about myself, knew that my name was no longer Cooper but Heddon, and all about my position in the world. I've forgotten a lot since I woke. There's a want of connection, but it was all quite clear and matter of fact then. He hesitated again gripping the window-strap, putting his face forward, and looking up to me appealingly. "'This seems bosh to you?' "'No, no,' I cried. "'Go on, tell me what this loggia was like.' It was not really a loggia. I don't know what to call it. It faced south. It was small. It was all in shadow except the semicircle above the balcony that showed the sky and sea and the corner where the girl stood. I was on a couch. It was a metal couch with light striped cushions and the girl was leaning over the balcony with her back to me. The light of the sunrise fell on her ear and cheek. Her pretty white neck and the little curls that nestled there and her white shoulder were in the sun, and all the grace of her body was in the cool blue shadow. She was dressed, how can I describe it? It was easy and flowing, and altogether there she stood, so that it came to me how beautiful and desirable she was, as though I had never seen her before and when at last I sighed and raised myself upon my arm, she turned her face to me. He stopped. I have lived three and fifty years in this world. I have had mother, sisters, friends, wife and daughters. All their faces, the play of their faces, I know, but the face of this girl, it is much more real to me. I can bring it back into memory so that I can see it again. I could draw it or paint it and after all he stopped but i said nothing the face of a dream the face of a dream she was beautiful not that beauty which is terrible cold and worshipful like the beauty of a saint nor that beauty that stirs fierce passions but a sort of radiation sweet lips that softened into smiles and grave gray eyes and she moved gracefully she seemed to have part with all pleasant and gracious things he stopped and his face was downcast and hidden then he looked up at me and went on making no further attempt to disguise his absolute belief in the reality of his story you see i had thrown up my plans and ambitions thrown up all i had ever worked for or desired for her sake i had been a master man away there in the north with influence and property and a great reputation but none of it had seemed worth having beside her. I had come to the place, this city of sunny pleasures, with her, and left all those things to wreck and ruin, just to save a remnant at least of my life. While I had been in love with her before I knew that she had any care for me, before I had imagined that she would dare, that we should dare, all my life had seemed vain and hollow, dust and ashes. It was dust and ashes. Night after night and through the long days I had longed and desired. My soul had beaten against the thing forbidden. But it is impossible for one man to tell another just these things. It's emotion, it's a tint, a light that comes and goes. Only while it's there, everything changes, everything. The thing is, I came away and left them in their crisis to do what they could. Left whom? I asked, puzzled. The people up in the north there. You see, in this dream, anyhow, I had been a big man, the sort of man men come to trust in, to group themselves about. Millions of men who had never seen me were ready to do things and risk things because of their confidence in me. I had been playing that game for years, that big, laborious game, that vague, monstrous political game amidst intrigues and betrayals, speech and agitation. It was a vast, weltering world, and at last i had a sort of leadership against the gang you know it was called the gang a sort of compromise of scoundrelly projects and base ambitions and vast public emotional stupidities and catchwords the gang that kept the world noisy and blind year by year and all the while that it was drifting drifting towards infinite disaster but i can't expect you to understand the shades and complications of the year The year, something or other, ahead, I had it all, down to the smallest details in my dream. I suppose I had been dreaming of it before I awoke, and the fading outline of some queer new development I had imagined still hung about me as I rubbed my eyes. It was some grubby affair that made me thank God for the sunlight. I sat up on the couch and remained looking at the woman, and rejoicing, rejoicing that I had come away out of all that tumult, and folly and violence, before it was too late. After all, I thought, this is life, love and beauty, desire and delight. Are they not worth all those dismal struggles for vague gigantic ends? And I blamed myself for having ever sought to be a leader, when I might have given my days to love. But then, thought I, if I had not spent my early days, sternly and austerely, I might have wasted myself upon vain and worthless women, and at the thought all my being went out, in love and tenderness to my dear mistress, my dear lady, who had come at last and compelled me, compelled me by her invincible charm for me, to lay that life aside. You are worth it, I said, speaking without intending her to hear. You are worth it, my dearest one. Worth pride and praise and all things. Love, to have you, is worth them all together. And at the murmur of my voice she turned about. Come and see, she cried. I can hear her now. Come and see the sunrise upon Monte Solaro. I remember how I sprang to my feet and joined her at the balcony. She put a white hand upon my shoulder and pointed towards great masses of limestone, flushing, as it were, into life. I looked but first I noted the sunlight on her face, caressing the lines of her cheeks and neck. How can I describe to you the scene we had before us? We were at Capri. I have been there, I said. I have clambered up Monte Solaro and drunk Vero Capri, muddy stuff like cider, at the summit. Ah, said the man with the white face, then perhaps you can tell me you will know if this was indeed Capri, for in this life I have never been there let me describe it we were in a little room one of a vast multitude of little rooms very cool and sunny hollowed out of the limestone of a sort of cape very high above the sea the whole island you know was one enormous hotel complex beyond explaining and on the other side there were miles of floating hotels and huge floating stages to which the flying machines came they called it a pleasure city of course there was none of that in your time rather i should say is none of that now of course now yes well this room of ours was at the extremity of the cape so that one could see east and west eastward was a great cliff a thousand feet high perhaps coldly grey except for one bright edge of gold and beyond it the isle of the sirens and a falling coast that faded and passed into the hot sunrise and when one turned to the west Distinct and near was a little bay, a little beach still in shadow, and out of that shadow rose Solaro, straight and tall, flushed and golden-crested, like a beauty throned, and the white moon was floating behind her in the sky, and before us from east to west stretched the many-tinted sea, all dotted with little sailing-boats. To the eastward, of course, these little boats were grey and very minute and clear, but to the westward they were little boats of gold shining gold almost like little flames and just below us was a rock with an arch worn through it the blue sea-water broke to green and foam all round the rock and a galley came gliding out of the arch i know that rock i said i was nearly drowned there it is called the faraglioni faraglioni yes she called it that answered the man with the white face there was some story but that He put his hand to his forehead again. No, he said, I forget that story. Well, that is the first thing I remember, the first dream I had, that little shaded room and the beautiful air and sky, and that dear lady of mine, with her shining arms and her graceful robe, and how we sat and talked in half-whispers to one another. We talked in whispers, not because there was anyone to hear, but because there was still such a freshness of mind between us, that our thoughts were a little frightened, I think, to find themselves at last in words, and so they went softly. Presently we were hungry, and we went from our apartment, going by a strange passage with a moving floor, until we came to the great breakfast-room. There was a fountain and music, a pleasant and joyful place it was, with its sunlight and splashing and the murmur of plucked strings and we sat and ate and smiled at one another and i would not heed a man who was watching me from a table near by and afterwards we went on to the dancing hall but i cannot describe that hall the place was enormous larger than any building you have ever seen and in one place there was the old gate of capri caught into the wall of a gallery high overhead light girders Stems and threads of gold burst from the pillars like fountains, streamed like an aurora across the roof, and interlaced like, like conjuring tricks. All about the great circle for the dancers there were beautiful figures, strange dragons and intricate and wonderful grotesques bearing lights. The place was inundated with artificial light that shamed the new-born day, and as we went through the throng the people turned about and looked at us for all through the world my name and face were known, and how I had suddenly thrown up pride and struggle to come to this place. And they looked also at the lady beside me, though half the story of how at last she had come to me was unknown or mistold, and few of the men who were there I know, but judged me a happy man, in spite of all the shame and dishonor that had come upon my name. The air was full of music, full of harmonious scents, full of the rhythm of beautiful motions. Thousands of beautiful people swarmed about the hall, crowded the galleries, sat in a myriad recesses. They were dressed in splendid colors and crowned with flowers. Thousands danced about the great circle beneath the white images of the ancient gods, and glorious processions of youths and maidens came and went. We two danced, not the dreary monotonies of your days, of this time, I mean, but dances that were beautiful, intoxicating, and even now I can see my lady dancing, dancing joyously. She danced, you know, with a serious face. She danced with a serious dignity, and yet she was smiling at me and caressing me, smiling and caressing with her eyes. The music was different, he murmured. It went. I cannot describe it, but it was infinitely richer and more varied than any music that has ever come to me awake. And then, it was when we had done dancing, a man came to speak to me. He was a lean, resolute man, very soberly clad for that place, and already I had marked his face watching me in the breakfasting hall, and afterwards, as we went along the passage, I had avoided his eye. But now, as we sat in a little alcove, smiling at the pleasure of all the people who went to and fro across the shining floor he came and touched me and spoke to me so that i was forced to listen and he asked that he might speak to me for a little time apart no i said i have no secrets from this lady what do you want to tell me he said it was a trivial matter or at least a dry matter for a lady to hear perhaps for me to hear said i he glanced at her as though almost he would appeal to her then he asked me suddenly if i had heard of a great and avenging declaration that gresham had made now gresham had always before been the man next to myself in the leadership of that great party in the north he was a forcible hard and tactless man and only i had been able to control and soften him it was on his account even more than my own i think that the others had been so dismayed at my retreat so this question about what he had done reawakened my old interest in the life I had put aside, just for a moment. "'I've taken no heed of any news for many days,' I said. "'What has Gresham been saying?' And with that the man began. Nothing loath, and I must confess, ever, I was struck by Gresham's reckless folly in the wild and threatening words he had used. And this messenger they had sent to me not only told me of Gresham's speech— but went on to ask counsel and to point out what need they had of me. While he talked, my lady sat a little forward and watched his face and mine. My old habits of scheming and organizing reasserted themselves. I could even see myself suddenly returning to the north and all the dramatic effect of it. All that this man said witnessed to the disorder of the party indeed, but not to its damage. I should go back stronger than I had come, and then I thought of my lady. You see, how can I tell you? There were certain peculiarities of our relationship, as things are, I need not tell you about that, which would render her presence with me impossible. I should have had to leave her. Indeed, I should have had to renounce her, clearly and openly, if I was to do all that I could do in the North, and the man knew that even as he talked to her and me, knew it as well as she did, that my steps to duty were first separation, then abandonment. At the touch of that thought, my dream of a return was shattered. I turned on the man suddenly, as he was imagining his eloquence was gaining ground with me. "'What have I to do with these things now?' I said. "'I have done with them. Do you think I am coquetting with your people in coming here?' "'No,' he said. "'But—' Why cannot you leave me alone? I have done with these things. I have ceased to be anything but a private man. Yes, he answered, but have you thought this talk of war, these reckless challenges, these wild aggressions? I stood up. No, I cried, I won't hear you. I took count of all those things. I weighed them, and I have come away. He seemed to consider the possibility of persistence. He looked from me to where the lady sat regarding us. "'War,' he said, as if he was speaking to himself, and then turned slowly from me and walked away. I stood, caught in the whirl of thoughts his appeal had set going. I heard my lady's voice. "'Dear,' she said, "'but if they have need of you—' She did not finish her sentence. She let it rest there. I turned to her sweet face, and the balance of my mood swayed and reeled. "'They want me only to do the thing they dare not do themselves,' I said. If they distrust Gresham, they must settle with him themselves. She looked at me doubtfully. But war, she said, I saw a doubt on her face that I had seen before, a doubt of herself and me, the first shadow of the discovery that, seen strongly and completely, must drive us apart for ever. Now, I was an older mind than hers, and I could sway her to this belief or that. My dear one, I said, you must not trouble over these things. There will be no war. Certainly there will be no war. The age of wars is past. Trust me to know the justice of this case. They have no right upon me, dearest, and no one has a right upon me. I have been free to choose my life, and I have chosen this. But war, she said. I sat down beside her. I put an arm behind her and took her hand in mine i set myself to drive that doubt away i set myself to fill her mind with pleasant things again i lied to her and in lying to her i lied also to myself and she was only too ready to believe me only too ready to forget very soon the shadow had gone again and we were hastening to our bathing place in the grotta del bovo marino where it was our custom to bathe every day We swam and splashed one another, and in that buoyant water I seemed to become something lighter and stronger than a man, and at last we came out dripping and rejoicing, and raced among the rocks, and then I put on a dry bathing-dress, and we sat to bask in the sun, and presently I nodded, resting my head against her knee, and she put her hand upon my hair, and stroked it softly, and I dozed. And behold, as it were, with the snapping of the string of a violin, I was awakening, and I was in my own bed in Liverpool, in the light of to-day. Only for a time I could not believe that all these vivid moments had been no more than the substance of a dream. In truth, I could not believe it a dream, for all the sobering reality of things about me. I bathed and dressed, as it were, by habit, and as i shaved i argued why i of all men should leave the woman i loved to go back to fantastic politics in the hard and strenuous north even if gresham did force the world back to war what was that to me i was a man with the heart of a man and why should i feel the responsibility of a deity for the way the world might go you know that is not quite the way i think about affairs about my real affairs I am a solicitor, you know, with a point of view. The vision was so real, you must understand, so utterly unlike a dream, that I kept perpetually recalling little irrelevant details. Even the ornament of a book cover that lay on my wife's sewing-machine in the breakfast-room recalled with the utmost vividness the gilt line that ran about the seat in the alcove where I had talked with the messenger from my deserted party "'Have you ever heard of a dream that had a quality like that?' "'Like,' so that afterwards you remembered little details you had forgotten." I thought I had never noticed the point before, but he was right. "'Never,' I said. "'That is what you never seem to do with dreams.' "'No,' he answered. "'But that is just what I did. I am a solicitor, you must understand, in Liverpool.' and i could not help wondering what the clients and businessmen i found myself talking to in my office would think if i told them suddenly i was in love with a girl who would be born a couple of hundred years or so hence and worried about the politics of my great-great-great-grandchildren i was chiefly busy that day negotiating a ninety-nine year building lease it was a private builder in a hurry and we wanted to tie him in every possible way. I had an interview with him, and he showed a certain want of temper that sent me to bed still irritated. That night I had no dream, nor did I dream the next night, at least to remember. Something of that intense reality of conviction vanished. I began to feel sure it was a dream, and then it came again. When the dream came again, nearly four days later, it was very different. I think it's certain that four days had also elapsed in the dream. Many things had happened in the north, and the shadow of them was back again between us, and this time it was not so easily dispelled. I began, I know, with moody musings. Why, in spite of all, should I go back—go back for all the rest of my days to toil and stress? insults and perpetual dissatisfaction simply to save hundreds of millions of common people whom i did not love whom too often i could not do other than despise from the stress and anguish of war and infinite misrule and after all i might fail they all sought their own narrow ends and why should not i why should not i also live as a man and out of such thoughts Her voice summoned me, and I lifted my eyes. I found myself awake and walking. We had come out above the Pleasure City. We were near the summit of Monte Solaro, and looking towards the bay. It was the late afternoon and very clear. Far away to the left, Ischia hung in a golden haze between sea and sky, and Naples was coldly white against the hills, and before us was Vesuvius, with a tall and slender streamer, feathering at last towards the south and the ruins of torre dell'annunciata and castellamare glittering and near i interrupted suddenly you have been to capri of course only in this dream he said only in this dream all across the bay beyond sorrento were the floating palaces of the pleasure city moored and chained and northward were the broad floating stages that received the aeroplanes. Aeroplanes fell out of the sky every afternoon, each bringing its thousands of pleasure-seekers from the uttermost parts of the earth to Capri and its delights. All these things, I say, stretched below. But we noticed them only incidentally, because of an unusual sight that evening had to show. Five war aeroplanes, that had long slumbered, useless in the distant arsenals of the Rhine mouth, were manoeuvring now in the eastward sky. Gresham had astonished the world by producing them, and others, and sending them to circle here and there. It was the threat material in the great game of bluff he was playing, and it had taken even me by surprise. He was one of those incredibly stupid, energetic people who seem sent by heaven to create disasters. His energy, to the first glance, seemed so wonderfully like capacity, but he had no imagination, no invention, only a stupid, vast driving force of will, and a mad faith in his stupid, idiot luck to pull him through. I remember how we stood out upon the headland, watching the squadron circling far away, and how I weighed the full meaning of the sight, seeing clearly the way things must go. And then even it was not too late. I might have gone back, I think, and saved the world. The people of the North would follow me, I knew, granted only that in one thing I respected their moral standards. The East and South would trust me as they would trust no other Northern man, and I knew I had only to put it to her, and she would have let me go, not because she did not love me. Only I did not want to go. My will was all the other way about. I had so newly thrown off the incubus of responsibility. I was still so fresh a renegade from duty that the daylight clearness of what I ought to do had no power at all to touch my will. My will was to live, to gather pleasures, and make my dear lady happy. But Though this sense of vast neglected duties had no power to draw me, it could make me silent and preoccupied. It robbed the days I had spent of half their brightness and roused me into dark meditations in the silence of the night. And as I stood and watched Gresham's aeroplanes sweep to and fro, those birds of infinite ill omen, she stood beside me, watching me, Perceiving the trouble indeed, but not perceiving it clearly, Her eyes questioning my face, her expression shaded with perplexity. Her face was grey because the sunset was fading out of the sky. It was no fault of hers that she held me. She had asked me to go from her, and again in the night-time, And with tears she had asked me to go. At last it was the sense of her that roused me from my mood, I turned upon her suddenly, and challenged her to race down the mountain slopes. No, she said, as if I jarred with her gravity, but I was resolved to end that gravity, and made her run. No one can be very grey and sad who is out of breath, and when she stumbled I ran with my hand beneath her arm. We ran down past a couple of men who turned back, staring in astonishment at my behaviour. They must have recognised my face, and halfway down the slope came a tumult in the air clank 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 and we stopped and presently over the hill crest those war things came flying one behind the other the man seemed hesitating on the verge of a description what were they like i asked they had never fought he said they were just like our ironclads are nowadays they had never fought no one knew what they might do with excited men inside them Few even cared to speculate. They were great driving things, shaped like spearheads without a shaft, with a propeller in the place of the shaft. "'Steel?' "'Not steel.' Aluminium, "'No, no, nothing of that sort. An alloy that was very common, as common as brass, for example. It was called—let me see.' He squeezed his forehead with the fingers of one hand. "'I am forgetting everything,' he said and they carried guns little guns firing high explosive shells they fired the guns backwards out of the base of the leaf so to speak and rammed with the beak. that was the theory you know but they had never been fought no one could tell exactly what was going to happen and meanwhile i suppose it was very fine to go whirling through the air like a flight of young swallows swift and easy i guess the captains tried not to think too clearly what the real thing would be like, and these flying war machines, you know, were only one sort of the endless war contrivances that had been invented and had fallen into abeyance during the long peace. There were all sorts of these things that people were routing out and furbishing up, infernal things, silly things, things that had never been tried, big engines, terrible explosives, great guns you know the silly way of these ingenious sort of men who make these things? They turn them out as beavers build dams, and with no more sense of the rivers they're going to divert, and the lands they're going to flood. As we went down the winding stepway to our hotel again, in the twilight, I foresaw it all. I saw how clearly and inevitably things were driving for war, in Gresham's silly, violent hands and I had some inkling of what war was bound to be under these new conditions. And even then, though I knew it was drawing near the limit of my opportunity, I could find no will to go back. He sighed. That was my last chance. We did not go into the city until the sky was full of stars. So we walked out upon the high terrace, to and fro, and she counselled me to go back. "'My dearest,' she said, and her sweet face looked up to me. This is death. This life you lead is death. Go back to them. Go back to your duty. She began to weep, saying between her sobs, and clinging to my arm as she said it, Go back. Go back. Then suddenly she fell mute, and, glancing down at her face, I read in an instant the thing she had thought to do. It was one of those moments when one sees. No, I said, no, she asked in surprise, and I think a little fearful at the answer to her thought. Nothing, I said. She'll send me back. Nothing I have chosen, love I have chosen, and the world must go. Whatever happens, I will live this life. I will live for you. It nothing shall turn me aside. Nothing, my dear one. Even if you died. Even if you died yes she murmured softly then i also would die and before she could speak again i began to talk talking eloquently as i could do in that life talking to exalt love to make the life we were living seem heroic and glorious and the thing i was deserting something hard and enormously ignoble that it was a fine thing to set aside i bent all my mind to throw that glamour upon it seeking not only to convert her but myself to that we talked and she clung to me torn too between all that she deemed noble and all that she knew was sweet and at last i did make it heroic made all the thickening disaster of the world only a sort of glorious setting to our unparalleled love and we two poor foolish souls strutted there at last clad in that splendid delusion drunken rather with that glorious delusion under the still stars and so my moment passed it was my last chance even as we went to and fro there the leaders of the south and east were gathering their resolve and the hot answer that shattered gresham's bluffing for ever took shape and waited and all over asia and the ocean and the south The air and the wires were throbbing, with their warnings to prepare, prepare! No one living, you know, knew what war was. No one could imagine, with all these new inventions, what horror war might bring. I believe most people still believed it would be a matter of bright uniforms and shouting charges and triumphs and flags and bands in a time when half the world drew its food supply from regions ten thousand miles away the man with the white face paused i glanced at him and his face was intent on the floor of the carriage a little railway station a string of loaded trucks a signal box and the back of a cottage shot by the carriage window and a bridge passed with a clap of noise echoing the tumult of the train after that he said i dreamt often for three weeks of nights that dream was my life and the worst of it was there were nights when i could not dream when i lay tossing on a bed in this accursed life and there somewhere lost to me things were happening momentous terrible things i lived at nights my days my waking days this life i am living now became a faded far away dream a drab setting the cover of the book he thought i could tell you all tell you every little thing in the dream but as to what i did in the daytime no i could not tell i do not remember my memory my memory has gone the business of life slips from me he leant forward and pressed his hands upon his eyes for a long time he said nothing and then said i the war burst like a hurricane he stared before him at unspeakable things and then i urged again one touch of unreality he said in the low tone of a man who speaks to himself and they would have been nightmares but they were not nightmares they were not nightmares no he was silent for so long that it dawned upon me that there was a danger of losing the rest of the story but he went on talking again in the same tone of questioning self-communion what was there to do but flight I had not thought the war would touch Capri. I had seemed to see Capri as being out of it all, as the contrast to it all. But two nights after, the whole place was shouting and bawling. Every woman almost, and every other man, wore a badge, Gresham's badge, and there was no music but a jangling war song over and over again, and everywhere men enlisting, and in the dancing halls they were drilling. The whole island was a whirl with rumors. It was said again and again that fighting had begun. I had not expected this. I had seen so little of the life of pleasure that I had failed to reckon with this violence of the amateurs. And as for me, I was out of it. I was like a man who might have prevented the firing of a magazine. The time had gone. I was no one the vainest stripling with a badge counted for more than i the crowd jostled us and bawled in our ears that accursed song deafened us a woman shrieked at my lady because no badge was on her and we two went back to our own place again ruffled and insulted my lady white and silent and i a quiver with rage So furious was I, I could have quarrelled with her if I could have found one shade of accusation in her eyes. All my magnificence had gone from me. I walked up and down our rock cell, and outside was the darkling sea, and a light to the southward that flared and passed and came again. We must get out of this place, I said over and over, I have made my choice, and I will have no hand in these troubles. I will have nothing of this war. We have taken our lives out of all these things. This is no refuge for us. Let us go. And the next day we were already in flight from the war that covered the world. And all the rest was flight. All the rest was flight. He mused darkly. How much was there of it? He made no answer. How many days? His face was white and drawn and his hands were clenched. He took no heed of my curiosity. I tried to draw him back to his story with questions. Where did you go? I said. When? When you left Capri? Southwest, he said, and glanced at me for a second. We went in a boat. But I should have thought an aeroplane. They had been seized. I questioned him no more. Presently I thought he was beginning again he broke out in an argumentative monotone but why should it be if indeed this battle this slaughter and stress is life why have we this craving for pleasure and beauty if there is no refuge if there is no place of peace and if all our dreams of quiet places are a folly and a snare, why have we such dreams surely it was no ignoble cravings no base intentions Had brought us to this. It was love had isolated us. Love had come to me with her eyes, and robed in her beauty, more glorious than all else in life, in the very shape and colour of life, and summoned me away. I had silenced all the voices, I had answered all the questions, I had come to her, and suddenly there was nothing but war and death. I had an inspiration. After all, I said, It could have been only a dream. "'A dream!' he cried, flaming upon me. "'A dream! When even now!' For the first time he became animated. A faint flush crept into his cheek. He raised his open hand and clenched it, and dropped it to his knee. He spoke, looking away from me, and for all the rest of the time he looked away. "'We are but phantoms,' he said, and the phantoms of phantoms.' desires like cloud shadows and wills of straw that eddy in the wind The days pass use and want carry us through as a train carries the shadow of its lights so be it but one thing is real and certain one thing is no dream stuff but eternal and enduring It is the centre of my life, and all other things about it are subordinate or altogether vain. I loved her, that woman of a dream, and she and I are dead together. A dream! How can it be a dream, when it drenched a living life with unappeasable sorrow, when it makes all that I have lived for and cared for worthless and unmeaning? until that very moment when she was killed. I believed we had still a chance of getting away, he said, all through the night and morning that we sailed across the sea from Capri to Salerno. We talked of escape. We were full of hope, and it clung about us to the end. Hope for the life together we should lead, out of it all, out of the battle and struggle." the wild and empty passions, the empty arbitrary thou shalt and thou shalt not of the world. We were uplifted, as though our quest was a holy thing, as though love for one another was a mission. Even when from our boat we saw the fair face of that great rock capri, already scarred and gashed by the gun emplacements and hiding places that were to make it a fastness, We reckoned nothing of the imminent slaughter, Though the fury of preparation hung about In puffs and clouds of dust, At a hundred points amidst the grey. But indeed I made a text of that and talked. There, you know, was the rock, Still beautiful for all its scars, With its countless windows and arches and ways, Tier upon tier, for a thousand feet, A vast carving of grey, broken by vine-clad terraces and lemon and orange groves and masses of agave and prickly pear and puffs of almond blossom and out under the archway that is built over the piccolo marina other boats were coming and as we came round the cape and within sight of the mainland another little string of boats came into view driving before the wind towards the south-west in a little while a multitude had come out, the remoter just little specks of ultramarine in the shadow of the eastward cliff. It is love and reason, I said, fleeing from all this madness of war. And though we presently saw a squadron of aeroplanes flying across the southern sky, we did not heed it. There it was, a line of little dots in the sky, and then more, dotting the southeastern horizon and then still more until all that quarter of the sky was stippled with blue specks now they were all thin little strokes of blue and now one and now a multitude would heal and catch the sun and become short flashes of light they came rising and falling and growing larger like some huge flight of gulls or rooks or such-like birds moving with a marvellous uniformity and ever As they drew nearer, they spread over a greater width of sky. The southward wing flung itself in an arrow-headed cloud athwart the sun, and then suddenly they swept round to the eastward and streamed eastward, growing smaller and smaller and clearer and clearer again until they vanished from the sky. And after that we noted to the northward and very high Gresham's fighting machines hanging high over Naples, like an evening swarm of gnats, it seemed to have no more to do with us than a flight of birds. Even the mutter of guns far away in the southeast seemed to us to signify nothing. Each day, each dream after that, we were still exalted, still seeking that refuge where we might live and love. Fatigue had come upon us, pain and many distresses, for though we were dusty and stained by our toilsome tramping, and half-starved and with the horror of the dead men we had seen and the flight of the peasants for very soon a gust of fighting swept up the peninsula with these things haunting our minds it still resulted only in a deepening resolution to escape oh but she was brave and patient she who had never faced hardship and exposure had courage for herself and me we went to and fro seeking an outlet over a country all commandeered and ransacked by the gathering hosts of war always we went on foot at first there were other fugitives but we did not mingle with them some escaped northward some were caught in the torrent of peasantry that swept along the main roads many gave themselves into the hands of the soldiery and were sent northward many of the men were impressed But we kept away from these things. We had brought no money to bribe a passage north, and I feared for my lady at the hands of these conscript crowds. We had landed at Salerno, and we had been turned back from Cava, and we had tried to cross towards Taranto by a pass over Mount Alburno, but we had been driven back for want of food. And so we had come down among the marshes by Pestum, where those great temples stand alone I had some vague idea that by Pestum it might be possible to find a boat or something, and take once more to sea, and there it was, the battle overtook us. A sort of soul-blindness had me. Plainly I could see that we were being hemmed in, that the great net of that giant warfare had us in its toils. Many times we had seen the levees that had come down from the north, going to and fro, and had come upon them in the distance amidst the mountains making ways for the ammunition and preparing the mounting of the guns once we fancied they had fired at us taking us for spies at any rate a shot had gone shuddering over us several times we had hidden in woods from hovering aeroplanes but all these things do not matter now these nights of flight and pain we were in an open place near those great temples at Paestum, at last, on a blank stony place dotted with spiky bushes, empty and desolate, and so flat that a grove of eucalyptus far away showed to the feet of its stems how I can see it. My lady was sitting down under a bush, resting a little, for she was very weak and weary, and I was standing up, watching to see if I could tell the distance of the firing that came and went they were still you know fighting far from each other with these terrible new weapons that had never before been used guns that would carry beyond sight and aeroplanes that would do what they would do no man could foretell i knew that we were between the two armies and that they drew together i knew we were in danger and that we could not stop there and rest though all these things were in my mind they were in the background they seemed to be affairs beyond our concern chiefly i was thinking of my lady an aching distress filled me for the first time she had owned herself beaten and had fallen a-weeping behind me i could hear her sobbing but i would not turn round to her because i knew she had need of weeping and had held herself so far and so long for me it was well i thought that she would weep and rest And then we would toil on again, for I had no inkling of the thing that hung so near. Even now I can see her as she sat there, her lovely hair upon her shoulder, can mark again the deepening hollow of her cheek. If we had parted, she said, if I had let you go. No, said I, even now I do not repent. I will not repent. I made my choice, and I will hold on to the end. And then, overhead in the sky flashed something and burst and all about us i heard the bullets making a noise like a handful of peas suddenly thrown they chipped the stones about us and whirled fragments from the bricks and passed he put his hand to his mouth and then moistened his lips at the flash i had turned about you know she stood up she stood up you know and moved a step towards me as though she wanted to reach me and She had been shot through the heart. He stopped and stared at me. I felt all that foolish incapacity an Englishman feels on such occasions. I met his eyes for a moment, and then stared out of the window. For a long space we kept silence. When at last I looked at him, he was sitting back in his corner, his arms folded and his teeth gnawing at his knuckles. He bit his nail suddenly and stared at it. I carried her, he said towards the temples in my arms as though it mattered i don't know why they seemed a sort of sanctuary you know they had lasted so long i suppose she must have died almost instantly only i talked to her all the way silence again i have seen those temples i said abruptly and indeed he had brought those still sunlit arcades of worn sandstone very vividly before me It was the brown one, the big brown one. I sat down on a fallen pillar, and held her in my arms, silent, after the first babble was over. And after a little while the lizards came out and ran about again, as though nothing unusual was going on, as though nothing had changed. It was tremendously still there, the sun high and the shadows still. Even the shadows of the weeds upon the entablature were still in spite of the thudding and banging that went all about the sky i seem to remember that the aeroplanes came up out of the south and that the battle went away to the west one aeroplane was struck and overset and fell i remember that though it didn't interest me in the least it didn't seem to signify it was like a wounded gull you know flapping for a time in the water I could see it down the aisle of the temple, a black thing in the bright blue water. Three or four times, shells burst about the beach, and then that ceased. Each time that happened, all the lizards scuttled in and hid for a space. That was all the mischief done, except that once a stray bullet gashed the stone hard by, made just a fresh, bright surface. As the shadows grew longer, the stillness seemed greater. The curious thing he remarked with the manner of a man who makes a trivial conversation is that i didn't think i didn't think at all i sat with her in my arms amidst the stones in a sort of lethargy stagnant and i don't remember waking up i don't remember dressing that day i know i found myself in my office with my letters all slit open in front of me and how i was struck by the absurdity of being there seeing that in reality i was sitting stunned in that pystham temple with a dead woman in my arms i read my letters like a machine i have forgotten what they were about he stopped and there was a long silence suddenly i perceived that we were running down the incline from chalk farm to euston i started at this passing of time i turned on him with a brutal question with the tone of now or never and did you dream again yes he seemed to force himself to finish his voice was very low once more and as it were only for a few instants i seemed to have suddenly awakened out of a great apathy to have risen into a sitting position and the body lay there on the stones beside me-a gaunt body not her you know so soon it was not her. I may have heard voices, I do not know, only I knew clearly that men were coming into the solitude, and that that was a last outrage. I stood up and walked through the temple, and then there came into sight first one man with a yellow face, dressed in a uniform of dirty white, trimmed with blue, and then several climbing to the crest of the old wall of the vanished city and crouching there they were little bright figures in the sunlight and there they hung weapon in hand peering cautiously before them and further away i saw others and then more at another point in the wall it was a long lax line of men in open order presently the man i had first seen stood up and shouted a command and his men came tumbling down the wall and into the high weeds towards the temple. He scrambled down with them and led them. He came facing towards me, and when he saw me he stopped. At first I had watched these men with a mere curiosity, but when I had seen they meant to come to the temple, I was moved to forbid them. I shouted to the officer, You must not come here! I cried. I am here. I am here with my dead. He stared and then shouted a question back to me, in some unknown tongue. I repeated what I had said. He shouted again, and I folded my arms and stood still. Presently he spoke to his men and came forward. He carried a drawn sword. I signed to him to keep away, but he continued to advance. I told him again, very patiently and clearly, You must not come here. These are old temples, and I am here with my dead." Presently he was so close I could see his face clearly. It was a narrow face with dull grey eyes and a black moustache. He had a scar on his upper lip, and he was dirty and unshaven. He kept shouting unintelligible things, questions perhaps, at me. I know now that he was afraid of me, but at the time that did not occur to me. As I tried to explain to him, he interrupted me in imperious tones, bidding me, I suppose, stand aside he made to go past me and i caught hold of him i saw his face change at my grip you fool i cried don't you know she is dead he started back he looked at me with cruel eyes i saw a sort of exultant resolve leap into them delight then suddenly with a scowl he swept his sword back so and thrust he stopped abruptly i became aware of a change in the rhythm of the train the brakes lifted their voices and the carriage jarred and jerked. This present world, insisted upon itself, became clamorous. I saw through the steamy window huge electric lights glaring down from tall masts upon a fog, saw rows of stationary empty carriages passing by, and then a signal-box, hoisting its constellation of green and red into the murky London twilight, marched after them. I looked again at his drawn features he ran me through the heart it was with a sort of astonishment no fear no pain but just amazement that i felt it pierce me felt the sword drive home into my body it didn't hurt you know it didn't hurt at all the yellow platform lights came into the field of view passing first rapidly then slowly and at last stopping with a jerk dim shapes of men passed to and fro without "'Euston!' cried a voice. "'Do you mean there was no pain, no sting or smart, amazement, and then darkness, sweeping over everything? The hot, brutal face before me, the face of the man who had killed me, seemed to recede, it swept out of existence. "'Euston!' clamoured the voices outside. "'Euston!' The carriage door opened, admitting a flood of sound, and a porter stood regarding us the sounds of doors slamming, and the hoof-clatter of cab-horses, and behind these things the featureless remote roar of the London cobblestones came to my ears. A truckload of lighted lamps blazed along the platform. A darkness, a flood of darkness, that opened and spread and blotted out all things. "'Any luggage, sir?' said the porter. "'And that was the end?' I asked. He seemed to hesitate. Then, almost inaudibly he answered No. You mean I couldn't get to her. She was there on the other side of the temple. And then yes, I insisted. Yes.
1: Nightmares
0: he cried. Nightmares indeed. My God, great birds that fought and tore. End of section twenty five